Now we're going to read from God's Word. We are in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and I'm going to read starting at verse 21, Ephesians 5, 21, all the way through verse 33. Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at this text that we've read. We're looking at marriage. Now, when we come to this, people have all kinds of feelings about the topic of marriage. Some people, when you, when you bring up marriage, some people just love the idea of marriage. For them, marriage is this beautiful jewel that they want. They want it the way a treasure seeker hopes to find one day the gold. But for other people, marriage is something that terrifies them. Marriage scares them. Marriage is too risky. Marriage is too likely to result in disappointment, too likely to result in pain. And, and for others, marriage evokes maybe cynicism, maybe because of the broken family that you experienced, maybe your own divorce. Marriage means bitterness. Marriage for you means profound grief. Now, people have all kinds of ideas about marriage. And, and for all the people who talk about marriage, I suspect that all of us, all of us, would distrust people who, who make marriage sound easy. All of us would distrust someone who makes marriage sound easy. Marriage is not easy. But I'm also here to say that if someone only describes marriage as pain, and misery, well, you should, you should distrust that person also. Marriage is not easy. Marriage is hard. But neither is marriage only pain and disappointment. Marriage also has the potential to sing, to take you to beautiful places that you would never be able to reach or know outside of marriage. And so both of those, both of those our marriage. If you're unmarried or, or if you are married, I want you to both see the danger of marriage 
as well as the sublime goodness that marriage can bring. And so this week we're going to look at three things from our text. We're, we're really only going to be focusing on the first, uh, the first three verses. Um, so we'll look at these three things. First of all, the vulnerability and the nobility of submission. The vulnerability and the nobility of submission. And then secondly, we'll look at the, the vulnerability and the cost of love. The vulnerability and the cost of love. And then thirdly, we'll look at when God submitted. So the vulnerability and nobility of submission, the vulnerability and the cost of love, and when God submitted. So let's start with the, the vulnerability and the nobility of submission. And, and today, people, it, people want to do something with their lives. They want to do something, something meaningful with their life. We want to enter into something that's, that's bigger than just us and just bigger than just our background. We want to do something valuable, something noble. Well, women, here is something to consider. How about becoming a wife? How about entering marriage and becoming a wife? Now, some of you are single, and it may be that in God's providence, he may not call you into marriage. He may not open the door to marriage. And if that's his sovereign providential will, you are no less of a person. You are not missing out on God's good purposes for you. 1 Corinthians 7 makes this very clear. And the life of Jesus makes this clear. Jesus, who is our total example of realized humanity, Jesus never married while he walked on earth. Jesus was a single person, and he was no less a full person. But you can desire to be a wife. You can ask God to give you a husband. And if the Lord grants it, if the Lord grants it, that you would be a wife, you will enter into the one, one of the most vulnerable and yet noble of callings. You see this in verses 22 through 24. The writer has one instruction and only one instruction here to wives. He says, wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. This one instruction here to wives. Submit to your own husband. Now let me start with a number of statements about what is not being said. What is not being said. First of all, submission is not the primary focus of being a wife. Submission is, is the main instruction given to a wife in this passage, but there are plenty of other passages in the Bible about marriage with instruction to the wife where submission is just not even mentioned. For instance, Titus 2, speaking to wives. The primary instruction is about love, not about submission. Or in Proverbs 31, speaking about and speaking to wives. The primary instruction seems to involve independence for the wife, industry for the wife, investment for the wife, not submission. And so submission is the focus here in this text. But submission is not the sole focus of what it means to be a wife. Now, secondly, submission does not imply any kind of inferiority, any kind of natural inferiority of women in comparison to men. It just doesn't. And I'm sorry to say that some people, including some Christian teachers, they will make broad generalizations about men and women 
which are untrue. For instance, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it say that men are, are more rational, but, but women are more emotional. The Bible's clear. Both men and women, male and female, they are made fully in the image of God. And neither does the Bible say that women tend to be more relationship savvy, but men are more task-oriented. It doesn't say that. There may be cultures, there may be places where that generalization is true. But the scriptures never state that those differences are inherent to the gender itself. And so the instructions for wives to submit to their own husbands, it does not indicate the inferiority of women. Nor does this instruction about submission indicate some kind of innately rebellious streak in women. It's not just singling out women, because immediately in the the very first verse that we read, verse 20, Paul says, all of you, men and women, all of you, submit to one another in the fear of God. And so, so even this text, all genders are called to submit to one another. Women are not inherently more unsubmissive than men. So what else are we not saying? Thirdly, we're, saying, we're not saying this. The instruction about submission does not direct women to submit to men. It does not direct women to submit to men. The qualifiers here clearly say, if you are a wife, submit to your own husband. Not to other men, not to other people's husbands. Women, you do not owe submission to men in general. Now, fourthly, nowhere does it say also, nowhere does it say that a husband may extract submission from his own wife. It does not say that the husband may extract from his own wife submission. The instruction is given to the wife. This is instruction given to the wife, not to the husband. Her submission, it must be voluntary. He is, the husband's not directed to demand or to, to force submission from her. Quite the contrary, as we'll see. And, and yet, for some husbands, they will just go on a, a nag. They'll go on a tear, nagging their wives about submission. But her submission must be voluntary. It must be her own free will. And as we will see, you, the husband, you, the husband, must treat her in a way that invites, that deserves submission. But if you're pressuring her, if you're pressuring her for submission, you have missed the main point. Now, having issued all these disclaimers, let me state what the text does teach. What does the text teach? Verse 21, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, three things that the text does teach. First of all, when a woman marries, when a woman marries, she volunteers for vulnerability. She's volunteering to be vulnerable. She volunteers for the role, which is the vulnerable role. When a woman marries, it's got to be voluntary. She must not be pressured to marry against her desire. She must not be pressured to marry. She must not be pressured about who to marry against her desire. When a woman marries, she makes a voluntary choice to enter a position of submission to this one man. And she's not making a statement of inferiority, but she is choosing to make herself vulnerable, to to be in the place where she will be below the will of this one man, her husband. Now, why is this vulnerable? It's because she agrees. She's agreeing 
to take the position which submits. The wife is to submit to the husband. Well, what does submission mean? What are we talking about? Well, it means that you might disagree with your husband. You're married. You're having to work through just life, all the things that come with life. You might disagree with your husband about something having to do with parenting, how you will treat the children, how you will respond to the children, what you will do for the children. You might disagree with your husband about a financial matter. Maybe, maybe, should we take out a mortgage of this size or should we take out a mortgage of this size? And you have a difference of views on it. And, and maybe you, the wife, you might be the one who hands down, you might be the one who is hands down more financially skilled than your husband. Maybe you might be, with parenting, you might be more knowledgeable about the scriptures. You might be more savvy about the principles of parenting well. And so you're at a disagreement. You might be hashing it out in conversation with your husband. And as you do that, you're being heard. But in the end, in the end, unless he's choosing something that's sinful, unless he's choosing something that will cause harm, you choose to let his way prevail. Now you see how that's the position of vulnerability. The wife, that means, that, that means the wife is subject to the, to the consequences of the husband choosing something for their marriage, for their family. She allows his decision to affect her. Well, what's the scope of this submission? What's this, are we just talking about choosing, you know, what people are going to watch, what, what people are, who gets to sit where in the car? What's the scope of her submission? Are we talking about decisions about money, decisions about church, decisions about parenting? Verse 24 says, in everything. Verse 24 says, in everything. And, and that, that fits with what we know about marriage and what we say in marriage, because marriage is a whole life commitment. The wife commits her whole person to the husband, and he commits his whole person to her. And so what they're saying, when two people are married, a man and a woman are married, we will become married. What is mine is yours. What is yours is mine, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. I pledge to you myself. And so let me add some qualifications to this. Does this mean, does this mean that the wife must submit to abuse? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If the wife is receiving physical abuse, if the wife is receiving sexual abuse, if the wife is receiving emotional abuse or financial abuse or spiritual abuse, she must not submit to that. Oppression is wicked. Psalm 10, the Lord will do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed that the man of earth may oppress no more. If a husband, if a wife or her children receive abuse from the husband, they must speak up. They must get help. And they must get out and preserve life. And if you have ever heard that a wife and children must submit to abuse, the scriptures teach the exact opposite. The scriptures say that Jesus Christ came to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to set them free from abuse. Now, what if you're married to a fool? What if you are married to a fool? Well, first of all, don't get married to a fool. Don't do it. Listen to wise counsel. And women, isn't it the case, you single women, isn't it the case that there are plenty of fools out there? 
and they all want to marry you. But what if you do marry a man and, and he turns into a fool? He proves to be a fool. Or what if you marry a man who proves to be badly immature, emotionally immature, spiritually immature? What if you marry a man who turns out to be evil? Well, that will be hard. That will be hard. And you will need supernatural grace from God. And you will need wisdom that is beyond the wisdom of humans. And you're going you're gonna to face messy decisions. You're going to have messy decisions where every choice in front of you, where every choice seems intolerable in, in one way or another. And, and you must never make the choice that results in you sinning or submitting to abuse. But God help you. God help you to have the understanding to know which way is wise, which way will be good, which way will be right. Your heart, your motives, your faith, your God, they will all be tested. They'll be tested to the breaking point, and you're going to need help. And don't, don't let him isolate you when you need help. Think of, think of the wife Abigail in the Old Testament. She was intelligent. She was beautiful. She feared the Lord. And she was married to a fool, Nabal. And everyone knew that he was rich and that he was a fool. And, and yet the Lord used Abigail. The Lord gave grace to Abigail, gave her wisdom to navigate the impossible and the intolerable marriage. And the Lord delivered Abigail. Nabal ended up doing himself in. You know the story. But the wife does become vulnerable. The wife is in the vulnerable position now, secondly, when a wife marries, she also enters the role of nobility. She enters a role of nobility. She does volunteer for vulnerability, but she also enters a role that is noble. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, the image presented here says, just as the church is subject to Christ, just as the church is under Christ, and Christ is her head, so it is with, with a wife and her husband. Now, you, you hear this, this word here. Christ is the head. The husband is the head. What does that mean? What does it mean for Christ to be head? Is the focus here, when headship is brought up, is the focus here authority? Is the focus of this passage authority? Is the passage emphasizing control? Well, I think if you look at the book of Ephesians, the passage here emphasizes not dominion, but union. Not domination and control, but union. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 supplies the reasoning and the basis for the church submitting to Christ. Verse 23, Christ is the head of the church and he is savior of the body. Now this word head, kephale, it's used several places in this book. In the context of this letter to the Ephesians, Christ as our head, it's already been discussed in this letter. What does it mean for Christ to be head of the church? The emphasis in context is not so much on his authority, on his right to command obedience. The emphasis here is that Christ is your head. 
Christ is your head. And that means somehow you're not just a citizen. It means he's your head and you're joined to his body. You're part of his body. You're part of his person. Having Christ as your head means that your identity is Christ. You're part of him. You're part of his body. And and you're growing more and more in likeness to him. And so it also, him being the head, it speaks of, of, of union. It speaks also of transformation. Union. You're joined to your head. Christ. Christ is your identity. Once you were nobody, now in Christ you're part of him. But transformation. You become like your head, Christ. He is changing you if you're the church. You, you hate who you had become, but you love what he's making you now. He's making you into something wonderful. So you see this earlier when, when Christ as the head is discussed. Earlier, Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11. And he, Jesus, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, so that's the church. The body of Christ is for their edifying. And here's the purpose, the end goal. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, that we may grow up into all things. So this is all this transformation, all this union talk, so that we can grow up into him who is the head, kephale. Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together, there's union, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This, this, this part in Ephesians 4, that's, that's, that's the theology behind why we're going through all of this application in chapter 5. And it, it starts by framing it in terms of Christ's headship. He's the head. What's the point of that? That we're joined to him, that our identity is him, and it's for transformation. He's making us into himself. And so the headship is speaking here about union, about transformation. Now, the headship of Christ does speak of authority. You you can think back all the way to chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also that which is to come, and he will put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the the headship of Christ, it does come with authority. It does speak of authority for the body, his church, But his headship speaks here especially of union and transformation. And that means this is part of why union to Christ, having Christ as your head, is noble. If you're the wife, because Christ is noble, because you are united to him, you are also noble. He's royal, so you are royal. Christ is holy and dazzling, and because he's your head, you are becoming holy and dazzling. Theologically speaking, because Christ is your head, that union is working your sanctification. Now, is this really the emphasis of our text? I've I've dragged us through Ephesians 4. It is. Look at the focus on our union to Jesus, our head, later on in the same chapter, Ephesians 5, 30. For we are members of his body, 
of his flesh and of his bones. That's all union. That's all union. He's the head and we're united to him. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's union. And the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so that means if you are a wife, your role is drenched with the royal overtones of the church whose head is Christ. She submits to her head because she is the body of royalty. She submits to her head because she is the body of royalty. Now, there's so much more we could say, but if you're hearing all this and you're a man or a husband and a man, and you're thinking, wow, this means I get to be the head over a wife. In, matters, in all matters, my will will prevail. If you're hearing this, and you're a woman, and maybe you're thinking, there is no way I am ever going to get married. If the husband is head in the marriage, he could take advantage of me. He could make selfish choices. And I'll be called to submit to that. No way. It's voluntary. I'm not signing up for it. Well, this is why you must not marry a fool. This is why you must not marry outside of the faith. And this is why if you're married to a selfish husband, something has got to change. Now, we'll address this more next time. But, but today, let's just briefly look at the vulnerability and the cost of love. The second thing, the vulnerability and the cost of love. The love of a husband the love from a husband. This passage describes the way that a marriage should work. And it's hard for the wife. Part of her role involves submitting to her husband. And so a woman, she has it hard if she chooses to enter into marriage. But a man has it harder. Now why do I say that? The man has it harder because his call is not to submit. What's the call to the husband here? He is to lay down his life for his wife. He is to lay down his life for his wife. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is referenced earlier in the same chapter, Ephesians 5.2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The husband is supposed to be the one who puts himself into the fire. He's the sacrifice. God calls the wife to submit to her own husband, but God calls the husband to sacrifice his whole life for his own wife. Now, this was radical when it was written. It was nothing like what they were thinking or what was going on in the, in the cultural norms. And this, today, this is also radical. Isn't that the point of the headship of Christ? Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Christ saved his body by sacrificing his life for his bride. And that means when there's a disagreement between a husband and a wife, when the two of them don't agree, it means he will hear her. It means he will listen and he will fully hear her. It means he will understand her, what she's trying to get through to him. And if they still disagree, it means he will not make the selfish, self-pleasing choice. It means he will make the self-sacrificing 
choice. He will make the choice that benefits her at cost to himself. And that puts husbands in an even more vulnerable position than the wife. And so, yes, husband, be the head in your marriage. Be the head that loves his body and serves his body and gives himself up for the good of his body, the wife. Why? Because you love her. Husbands love your wives. And in this way, every husband is actually submitting to his own wife and fulfilling the command, submit to one another in the fear of God. I'll give you one example. There came a day, my wife and I are very busy. We've got a lot that's going on. It's good, good things. It's on all kinds of fronts, stuff with ministry, stuff with our children, stuff with just trying to keep the house going. But there came a day when my wife needed to say to me, when you talk to me, it feels like you're talking not to your wife, but it feels like you're talking to staff, like you're talking to a staff member. And she was right. She was right. It needed to stop. It needed to change. Now, as we close, let's, let's look at the lived reality of submission and of love. We all come to this point where we disagree, where we don't like what they're doing, we don't agree with how they're saying it, we don't agree with why they're doing it. We all come to a point where we disagree. And if you're married, you come to the point as a husband or a wife where you don't agree. But even if you're not married, you come to a point of disagreement. We come to this over and over. You will come to some point where you disagree if not with a spouse, you're disagreeing with God. You, all of us, I, we all come to a point where we disagree with God. And maybe, perhaps, your question and your disagreement with God's will, it might have to do with marriage. Your disagreement with God might be, why am I still single, God? Why haven't you provided me with a spouse? Or maybe your disagreement with God is, God, why did you let me get married if it would turn out like this, you knew this would happen, why did you allow me into this? Or maybe your disagreement with God has nothing to do with marriage. Maybe your disagreement with God is just, why is it so hard? Or why did you make me this way? And I said earlier that a husband and a wife, you have to hash through your disagreements. There's got to be conversation. There has to be multiple conversations. And the wife, though she commits to submit, she has got to be heard and she's got to be understood. And if you, you husband, if you can't understand, why is it that my wife doesn't see it my way? You need more understanding. And if you need to, get help. Get help if you need it to understand her better. Husbands, live with your wives with understanding. And women, women don't go into marriage thinking that you're going to shut up. Far from it. Enter marriage expecting that you will speak. Submission does not mean silence. Submission does not mean silence. And a man is a fool if he tells his wife to shut up. Why do we say that our disagreements though must be spoken? That submission does not mean silence. That, that a wife must give voice to her disagreement and that she must be heard. That a believer... That if you're a believer, you must give voice to your disagreement with God and that you must be heard. Why do we say that? Look at how Jesus, the sinless man, look at how Jesus voiced his submission. 
Hebrews 5, 7 says, speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In the gospel, Jesus Christ submitted. In the gospel, Jesus Christ submitted to the will of God. It was the ultimate act of submission. And his submission was not silent. Jesus wrestled with God. In this, Jesus shows both the vulnerability and the nobility of the wife who submits to her head. 1 Corinthians 11 says that God is the head of Christ. And as Jesus considered laying down his own life for the church, Jesus wrestled with his head. Jesus wrestled with God. And Jesus spoke his difference of will to God. He said, let this cup, this cup of sacrificial death, let it pass from me. And then aloud he said, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And in his submission, Jesus loved us and saved us, and he took the consequences for someone else's bad decisions. Isn't that what submission entails? And his vulnerability accomplished the noble sacrifice for us, and his submission fulfilled for us the royal law of love. And so do you disagree with your husband? Do you disagree with your God? then you've got a real relationship. And a real relationship involves disagreement and submission. And it will involve and require communication and verbal wrestling. Take him your struggle. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we marvel that you would wrestle for us and you would submit for us and you would take the consequences for our foolish decisions and our sins You must love us greatly. And so being secured to you, our lovely one, we pray that you would give us grace to trust you, to come to you, and not to shut up, but to bring our tears and our woes and our confusion to you. And Lord, in our relationships, whether we're in marriage or out of marriage, in our disagreements, we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace, give us wisdom, show us how to love and to lay down our lives for one another. Show us how to submit to you. We pray, Lord, that you would bring us through these troubled, tumultuous times and that we would shine. You would shine the light of Christ through us and in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.